This morning we're we'll going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, starting in verse 18. And we're going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago. Basically, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes basically seems to be selling us on joy. And I put it that way because it's, it's weird that the Bible has to, has to work so hard to convince Christians that we're to have joy. I mean, if you've been tracking with me, it has spent half of chapter 7, most of chapter 8, and most of chapter 9 trying to convince us, hey, have joy. It actually commends joy to us at one point. Then it also in, it encourages us, instructs us, even commands in the imperative tense to enjoy your joy. Go out and be joyful. Even when the little Puritan in our head condemns us for being joyful, even when he condemns us for being happy, for not being serious enough, not feeling guilty enough for our sin, in the face of all that that little punk throws at us, Ecclesiastes says, no, rest in God's approval of you and be joyful. So we're going to see today that joyful resting in God's, in God's grace is wisdom. It's not all that wisdom is, but in this part of Ecclesiastes, that's what wisdom is, resting in God's grace. And we're going to see that wise joy is not lackadaisical about sin. It's not lackadaisical about folly or brokenness. This passage takes very seriously our folly, the sin in our hearts, but it's going to show us how to appropriate God's wisdom while living as a sinful, broken person in a broken, sinful world world, what Ecclesiastes has been calling under the sun. So God's wisdom brings, by his wisdom, God brings his people grace, and we get to experience that wisdom. He does that for us by approving us, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 9. And so because he's talking to those who have been approved by God, this is going to be an in-house talk, we'll call it. This is going to talk to those who've already been changed by God's grace, but it's going to look at some of the obstacles that you and I run into when it comes to deploying God's joyful wisdom in our lives. And we're going to see that wisdom turns the world upside down, empowering us to live under God instead of under the sun. And so with that, would you please turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, starting in verse 18. It's on page 10 in your order of worship there. You can bring your smartphones out. The ESV app is excellent. Or there's also a Bible there in front of you in the chair. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take that one with you. Uh, the passage is found on page 523 in that Bible. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 18. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest." There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt 
and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it's charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Now, this is God's word. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before your word, we ask, Lord, that you would once again do your work of opening this text up to us. Give us understanding, Lord. Give us wisdom for our growth and for our change. Lord, may those of us who know you appropriate your grace more robustly. And may those who do not know you come to see the beauty of your grace in the gospel of Jesus. Now we ask this, Father, by your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So just to jump right in, the main idea for today, the theme, kind of what everything's going to orbit around is this. Fools walk under the sun while the wise can live under God. We're going to see that the whisper of wisdom tells us when to act and when to wait. So it jumps right in the first couple of verses here with it started with a whisper. You ever heard that adage that wealth whispers while money screams? Well, here Ecclesiastes says something very similar. It says folly screams, but wealth, I mean, excuse me, but wisdom whispers. Tells us in verse 18 that wisdom is super powerful, better than weapons. You don't need to have a gun by your bed. You got wisdom. But, second part of the verse, maybe you do need a gun there. Because human sinfulness robs wisdom of its power. As great as wisdom is, sinners and sin still mess it up. Then it gives us an illustration of that in chapter 10, verse 1. So when you go, you get that new perfume, ladies or guys, new cologne, you open up the box. Now, how many dead flies do you like to see in that brand new bottle? What is it, two, three? Yeah, so too he says here, look, man, even a little bit of folly messes up wisdom. Now, folly isn't a word that we use very often, so let's make sure that we're getting it. If you notice in this passage, by holding up the concept of wisdom on one side and then contrasting it with the words throughout this passage of sinner, folly, fool, evil, error, foolishness, this passage is placing these things in opposition, showing us that joyful wisdom rests in God's approval. And fools, folly doesn't. The wise hear of God's grace and rest in it, but the foolish hear of God's grace and don't. That's folly. And notice how verse 2 makes this a heart issue, not just our behavior. Look at me at verse 2. It says, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. And a back up with your American political philosophy here, okay? I don't know if you've seen it or not, but like the, I think it's the mid-80s version uh, of the NIV version actually puts the word liberal in here. Okay, it's like, I, are you serious right now? Okay, okay, not about that. Not about that at all, okay? In the ancient world and kind of in our world, what's normal is default good. And what's abnormal is default bad. Give you an example. Okay, I went to kindergarten in 1980. For some of you, that makes me super young. For some of you, it's like they had school in 1980. Okay, and I remember Laramie, Wyoming, picking up my pencil with my left hand as my mom had taught me how to write my name. And I, I go to write my name, and this teacher walks up with a yardstick and smacks my hand. You put that pencil in the right hand. Yeah, 1980, not 1880. <laughs> I'm not sure what happened. I'm sure my non-Christian blue-collar six-foot-four father had something to do with it, but that she was not my teacher anymore for a few days later. Anyway, 
That's an example, right? Normal, right-hand, that's good. Left-handed, that's bad. We get our word for sinister from the Latin word for left. Left hand was considered the bad side. And so verse two is telling us here that wisdom and folly are good and bad inclinations of the heart. A heart made wise by God is good, but there's always this sinful pull to deny that grace. And again, this is an in-house passage. He's talking to those who claim to be God's people. We know, don't we? We can be changed by God's grace and deny that grace power in our lives, can't we? And that's the space where our inner Puritan thrives. Well, yeah, you're approved, but you're a really bad Christian. You think he approves of how little time you spend in the Bible? You think God approves of how angry a driver you are? You think he approves of your internet history? See, and in those instances where our Puritan is right, the wise takes those thoughts to our God of grace, repents and asks for strength. Lord, these are my flies in your ointment. Forgive me. Help me get rid of them. The fool hears those thoughts and says to the inner Puritan, you're right. I need to try harder. I need to be more diligent. I need to be more disciplined so that God will be happy with me. And it's foolish because looking to our own works, looking to our own efforts rather than God's grace just stinks. Our works and efforts are the flies in God's perfume of grace. But we do it because we think we're fooling everybody, don't we? And so verse three nails us and says, even in every little, every uh, Normal, everyday things, just walking. The fool just reeks of foolishness. You don't fool anybody. Now, if you were here a couple weeks ago, back in chapter 9, verse 8, we were instructed to make our joy manifestly evident to all, to show it off. And here, whether we want to or not, the fool shows off to everyone our foolishness. In fact, it's not just that he lacks sense, as the ESV translates it in verse 3. It literally says he has no heart. He's hollow on the inside. He's empty. And in the context of this part of Ecclesiastes, what that means is that there's been this uh, focus on joy as part of wisdom. The writer says here, the foolish have no joy in them, therefore they have no joy coming out of them. And hear this. Again, this is an in-house passage. We Christians can live in unbelief while being united to Christ by faith. Knowing about God's grace, but not really trusting in it. And when we do that, God's grace makes no difference in our life. That's verse three. A hollow shell of a Christian, completely lacking in joy, just as mean-spirited online as anybody else, just as quick to label someone an enemy as anyone else, just as afraid of the future as anyone else, and everyone can see it. It's a foolishness, and it shouts out, I live under the sun, Even while the gracious wisdom of God whispers to us, you can live under God and have joy. See, fools walk under the sun while the wise live under God. So instead of the shouting foolishness that we all know is in us, what do we do? We wait for it. That's what verses four through seven show us. While folly grasps, wisdom waits. And he gives an example we can all relate to, I'm sure. Dealing with a government full of fools and bullies. Look with me at verses four through seven. What he says, it says, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, 
Do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. So a couple of things we're going to work through here. So first of all, in verse 4, calmness there is actually the idea. It's the opposite of the lax sense in verse 3. So the foolish person in verse 3 is hollow, but here in verse 4, this person is full of health. We could translate it. See, fools can't handle the bullies and foolishness of life. But the wise are given resources to endure, even turn it around and bring rest in verse 4 even when it's really bad. The text has taken an unmistakable political turn here, okay? The the whole right-hand, left-hand thing was not political, but now we are political to remind us, look, don't trust in rulers to act wisely. After all, they're sinners riddled with foolishness just like you. And in verses 5 and 6, they make the evil mistake of putting more fools in charge so that they ignore the competent. Okay, we may not agree with it, but in their culture, it was assumed if you were rich, it's because you had some sort of competency. And so, hey, let's put you in charge of other things. Okay, we we may not agree with it. That's how they read this. And so they would say, oh, foolish people put the incompetent in charge. To the original readers, there's also something else here that we got to be very careful with. I know this day and age, the, the S word slaves is used. Okay, in a culture where only nobility and royalty ever rode horses, where anyone who was in debt or on the losing side of a battle could be a slave. They didn't care what color your skin was. If you're in too much debt, you could be a slave. You lose a battle, you could be a slave. To that culture, it says foolish rulers come in and they turn all that upside down. They put the most unworthy in charge. This is horrible political leadership in the original context. So those who have to endure it show who they are. Fools here grasp at straws trying to do anything, but the wise, they wait patiently because God has given them gracious resources to endure. I kind of want to give you a theological picture to, to, to help you understand this, okay? So if you remember, after Jesus' resurrection, all of his disciples were in an upper room, or we might call it a dining room of an ancient Near Eastern house, waiting because they were scared. Their leader had just been arrested for treason, executed by the state, and they knew that the religious and political leaders were looking for them. They're hiding. They're scared to death. And if you know this Christian story, you know, Jesus all of a sudden appears right before them. And I want you to think about that for a second. Think about Jesus appearing in a locked room. For most of us, because we've been so infected with pagan dualism, we think, okay, walls super solid, Jesus ghostly appears because he's somehow post-death. Okay, got it. But that's not the biblical picture. That's pagan Greek dualism. In the biblical theological picture, what's going on is that Jesus has a resurrected, glorified body with no sin. He's no longer experiencing the effects of sinfulness. We could call him a perfectly realized human being. So that wall was actually made of fallen matter and his glorified sinless body encountered it, and the wall was cloudy, misty, and ethereal compared to him, and so he walked right through it. Thanks for that, Pastor Sean. That was um, special, right? Why am I telling you this? Because the whole point of that is the resurrected Jesus is substantial in an insubstantial world. 
And what the pastor philosopher of Ecclesiastes is telling us here is that instead of being the hollow, insubstantial, foolish people who have not been changed by grace, who can't handle the foolishness of this world, the wise, those who have been changed by God's grace, those who are anchored in the joy of God's approval, we are in Jesus and we are substantial. We are substantial people who can bring peace to foolish situations in an insubstantial world. In Jesus, we can turn the world upside down. You know, I can't help but think that the Apostle Peter, who would be arrested, persecuted, and crucified by Rome, had this passage in Ecclesiastes on his heart when he wrote 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, verses 13 through 17. We have, a, have it on a slide. Just follow along with me. Here's what he says. It says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. See, Peter and Ecclesiastes tell those who have had an encounter with God's grace to appropriate that grace in your life, to be wise in unwise times to bring calm and healing when fools clamor. Oh, you want to make a difference in life? You want to change the world? Then embrace Jesus as the resurrected Lord. Receive the gracious wisdom that he will pour into you and unleash that joyful wisdom to an angry world of fools. Because fools walk under the sun while the wise can live under God. In other words, God's joyful, healing wisdom is not a call to passivity. Rather, wisdom takes action often when fools won't. That's how this text wraps up. When folly fears, wisdom acts, saying, Jesus, take the wheel. So the text moves on from politics, starting in verse 8, to kind of everyday work. Verses 8 through 9 kind of gives four examples of people simply doing their job, and then they're harmed by the common dangers of their work. Dude's just digging his hole like he's supposed to, but he falls into it. Gal's tearing down a stone wall, snake jumps out, bites her. Guy's cutting his stonework, getting ready to build something, has an accident. Carpenter gets hurt by his wood. Life happens. These are not punishments from on high. Your inner Puritan reads that and says, well, they must not have prayed enough. They must not be living right. God got them for that. Okay, no. The whole point is bad things happen in everyday life, simply emphasizing that under the sun, life is unpredictable and hard, right? But the gracious, joyful wisdom of God gives resources for living in that unpredictable, hard life. I mean, look at how practical verse 10 is. Look at me at verse 10. It says, if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength but wisdom helps one to succeed. All right, once you think way back, guys and gals, I've given my daughters knives, that first knife you ever get from a dad or from a grandparent, right? Most likely, hopefully they told you what I was told, what I have told, like a dull knife will cut you more than a sharp knife, which kind of sounds like you're not too bright, right? 
But why, why is that true? Because when it's dull, you, you apply more force, right? Because it takes more force. It's not working. Your blade's not sharp. And that's kind of what verse 10 is talking about here. It says, sharpen your blade. Wisdom helps us to succeed is what it says in the ESV. We could translate it, wisdom gives you prosperity. Wisdom brings profit for success. Sounds very economic, doesn't it? But he tells us, hey, experiencing the reality of grace makes us better. Remember back in verse 19, wisdom is better, and with wisdom, you are better. You can't get around the earthy, even economic language here. Sometimes things are hard because you haven't prepared. So sharpen your axe. Maintain your tools is what wisdom says. Wisdom takes action to mitigate some of the hardships under the sun. I don't know if you've had this experience. I have a couple times. Like if you're in a large group of people, like maybe a conference, and they bring out a, you know, the speaker and he's like one of those personality experts and all of a sudden he helps everybody understand their personality a little bit easier. And all of a sudden, those with the more, let's say, um, <clears throat> harsher personalities feel emboldened to like, that's who I, that's right. He, he has given me permission to be a jerk. I, I get to be a jerk now. I remember I had one guy when he heard the sentence, when you're a hammer, you treat everyone like a nail. It's like, yes, exactly. That's what everybody's problem is. I'm not going to say it's Marty because it wasn't. But anyway, so, right? See, the fool with that personality rejoices and, and says, that's right. So for you non-nails, get over it. I'm a hammer. The wise person with that personality uses God's wisdom to become more of a screwdriver as needed. Now, that's very practical, and I just want to go on, on record here. The Bible is not how to win friends and influence people. When the Bible calls us to wisdom, it's as an application of grace, not as, well, here's some life advice for you. So, applying that here, the hammer can only try to be a screwdriver when they haven't rooted their identity in being a hammer. This is who I am. This is how I define myself. This is me. That's bondage. But the wisdom of God's grace says that doesn't define me. That's just kind of my default. I can be different because God has given me strength to be different. Grounded in the approval of God, receiving his wisdom gives him the ability to be something besides a hammer. That's how wisdom from God's grace brings practical success, what verse 10 is talking about. Wisdom is powerful. It's better. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Jesus is actually called the wisdom of God. And so in him, we are given the Holy Spirit, we're told, and that spirit bear, bears fruit in our life. You know, it's fruit of the Spirit, right? Not fruits, it's fruit. I could probably ask our, our boys and girls to, to list them. I'm not, but I, I, I probably ask you to do it together. We're not, but you know, right? The fruit, singular, the spirit, you either have them all or you have them none. You don't get, you don't get, just get some. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That fruit is what sharpens our blade under the sun. That's what verse 10 is applied. The fruit God has put in you, it comes out of you. Life will just go better. You'll have success when you live in love, joy, peace, patience. And even right now, your inner Puritan is kind of a little like, I don't know about that. Love is all we need. Sounds like a Beatles song to me. I don't know about this. See, dear Christians, it's hard for us to believe that. 
It's hard for us to believe that God's wisdom really is that practically powerful in everyday life. Not because we don't have enough information, but because the fly in our ointment is our sinful, fearful hearts. And from our heart, we often demonstrate our foolishness, especially when challenged by life under the sun. See, in our foolishness, we've turned our own world upside down. And so we find ourselves living out the truth of verses eight through nine, hacking away at life, but it's not working. Our blade isn't sharp, so we run right up against verse 10. So we've got to extend more and more effort just to cope with our blunt tools, and it doesn't work, and it gives us an exhaustion, not joy. See, we desperately need Jesus the wisdom of God to come and change us and make us wise, to give us joy, to give us resources to make life work. And so what do we do in our desperation? Verse 11 reminds us that wisdom acts. It doesn't delay needlessly. Look at me at verse 11. It says this, if the serpent bites before it's charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. (laughs) What? Right, snake wrangler shows up, whatever that means. We're not exactly sure what the snake charmer is in the ancient Near East, but whoever this person is, they show up and they take too long to do their thing, so the snake bites them. Their skill was made worthless by their delay. So in context, what he's basically saying is, what good is being a snake charmer if you wait to charm the snake? Here's how he put it for the boys and girls. Boys and girls, I haven't spoken to you much today, I know. But if you look at me on page 11 at the bottom, here's how I put it for you. God's wisdom doesn't help us when we only learn about it. Wisdom lived out helps us. See, God pours wisdom into us, and when it comes out is when it really helps us in life. So if you allow me to apply it to us, don't just listen to sermons. Go to Sunday school, midweek Bible study, stream the sermon podcast, read the blogs. Get out there and let life under the sun squeeze you. Get into messy relationships with non-Christians. So you give a chance to implement the wisdom God has put into you. Go be joyful in hard things around non-Christians and mess them up. That's what he's telling you to do. And I can say it to you that strongly because Jesus did exactly that for us. Jesus suffered the anger of rulers and with peace and calmness, he fulfilled the Father's will all the way to the cross. And in doing so, he laid our great offenses to rest. He was the most worthy of all people, and yet he was treated as lowly as a slave, wasn't he? He was unjustly arrested, tried, and executed as a criminal, experiencing the foolishness of rulers. So much so, he deserved a crown, and he deserved a purple robe on his back. Instead, he wore a crown, all right, a crown of thorns. He had a back covered in lashings and blood, all so he could forgive his people and empower them to have joyful wisdom. See that on the cross, God turned the world upside down to free us from our bondage under the sun and to give us joy under his grace. See that on the cross, Jesus emptied himself, made himself hollow so that he could fill us up. Hollow people like us can be filled with his gracious, joyful wisdom. Oh, and now in that grace, he empowers people to live in joy right in the midst of pain, hardship, heartache, catastrophe under the sun. That's the gospel. That's Christianity. 
and forget everything you think you know about Christianity, everything you've called religion, and just simply place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as he's offered in the gospel. And you can have this joyful wisdom. And heed the warning of verse 11. Don't delay. Do it now. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for texts like this that give us passionate exhortations to have the joy that you've given us come out of us. Lord, we pray that you would give us relief from our inner Puritan, our inner critic, our inner disbeliever who doesn't really believe your gospel can be that good. Lord, would you forgive us for our doubts? Would you help us once again to see the beauty of Jesus in the gospel? Would you help us to embrace him more robustly and deeply and to live in joy, the joy that comes from your approval? And Lord, we pray for those here today who don't know you, that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up and portrayed as crucified for sinners and raised for new life, that you would do your work of drawing all people to him. Even now, Father, would you call many from death to life that they might have joy in Jesus. And we ask this, that you would do this, Father, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.